capital was the defining scarcity of the industrial age, land of the agrarian age, food of the forager age. Now, attention is the defining scarcity. You know, you can't go back in your life, right? You can't go back and change what you paid attention to yesterday. You know, a student who is walks into an exam ill-prepared can't go back and suddenly prepare. A nation that goes into a global pandemic ill-prepared can't go back and say, oh, we should have done more research on coronaviruses. You just can't do it, right? So attention is fundamentally scarce. And the business model of some of the biggest corporations is premised on hogging as much of that attention as they can because advertising, which is the fundamental business model of Facebook and Google, is the resale of attention. Uh, it's taking as much attention as you can get and then taking some of it and selling it to the advertisers. And that's a lot easier to do by giving you um, faux outrage and by giving you cheap emotional things um, as opposed to saying, hey, why don't you go and actually read this difficult book or why don't you go and watch this hour-long video that actually explains something in depth? That's not in their interest. In their interest is here's a quick hit and here's another quick hit and here's another quick hit. Now on Yang Speaks, I sit down with the incredible Susan Danziger and her husband, Albert Banger. Susan and Albert have been friends and mentors of mine for years. They're both investors, entrepreneurs, leaders, visionaries. They backed my campaign before anyone else did. And we have a very exciting announcement about how they're supporting universal basic income in New York State starting a little bit later this year. Thrilled to sit down with two of my favorite people in the world, Susan Danziger and Albert Banger. This week on Yang Speaks, I am so thrilled to welcome the powerhouse duo, Susan Danziger and Albert Banger of freaking Universal Basic Income Hall of Fame. We we have an incredible announcement. Uh, but Susan, thank you for joining the board of Humanity Forward. You are going to make us awesome and stronger. I'm thrilled. I think it's a huge opportunity and really appreciate your thinking of me. This is a thank you. Of course. And congratulations to everything you've done for entrepreneurs uh, around the world for the last number of years, really. You're an awesome role model. Uh, you've made a huge difference. And then Albert Wenger partner at Union Square Ventures and the author of this incredible book, World After Capital, uh, which really sums it up, uh, where uh, Albert uh, forecast a need for universal basic income, uh, in part because he thought that time was going to be the new money. And both Susan and Albert were some of the original champions of the Yang 2020 campaign when we were just like this fly speck. Um, I don't even think we legally existed uh, I had dinner with Susan and Albert and said, hey, I'm going to run for president on universal basic income. And they were like, yes, let's do it. Uh, so thank I, you both for being such incredible friends. Yeah, and visionaries. I, I, I remember that. That was a fun dinner. Yeah. When Al, uh, Michael came up with something, but Yang, Yang bucks or something or, <laughs> or uh, yeah, it was. Uh, get more Yang for your buck. Get more Yang for your buck. Well, Yang Bucks became a thing. So, you know, my, Michael's like his parents. <laughs> He's also way ahead of the curve. Now, we made an announcement, uh, but I don't know if people really understand it fully. Um, so I'd love for you two to help us re-unveil Hudson Up in the Universal Basic Income Trial. We are going to be giving 
people $500 a month for five years in a town called Hudson, New York. And it's really the two of you that uh, helped visualize it and bring it into the world. So I'd love to hear both of you talk about how you came to Universal Basic Income and then how you came to want to make this happen in the town of Hudson in Hudson Valley, New York. Well, so um, as you mentioned uh, in, in the introduction, Susan and I have been thinking about UBI for a long time. Um, we're both in tech. And I think if you're in tech, um, you see what technology can do and you see what incredible benefits it can have for humanity. Um, if we set ourselves up in a way where those benefits can be broadly distributed, where lots and lots of people can benefit from automation, from machine learning, from artificial intelligence. And so uh, we've long been supporters of UBI and we felt that um, uh, supporting opportunities um, to try it out at small scale or at large scale uh, is something that will help uh, advance people's understanding of how it works, um, how it influences people's lives. Uh, and so that has led us to this particular uh, moment. And then um, Susan can talk a little bit about why Hudson specifically. Yeah. So we have a, um, well, we have a farm where we are now. Um, it's right outside of Hudson. And we are actually launching a, um, a learning center in the city of Hudson called the Spark of Hudson. And the point of that is really to inspire people, all people um, in Hudson. Hudson's a really interesting town because it's such a diverse one. There are folks that are, are quite wealthy and there are folks that are quite middle and then there are a third, about a third of folks who are living at or below the poverty line. And so we figured that if we can get Hudson right and lift Hudson up, then Hudson can really be a model for communities around, around the U.S. and the world. And you're not just thinking or talking about it. You're putting your money where your mouth is. And I think we made this announcement, but you've made this incredibly generous gift to help seed the spark of Hudson and Hudson up. Uh, what was that amount? I just want to, just want to make sure I don't understate your, your, your generosity. <laughs> <laughs> what did you guys put up? Well, you know, I mean, I think uh, our um, family foundation, the Utopia Foundation and uh, Humanity Forward, I think we're splitting this 50-50 here, um, which is great. So we, we are excited about this partnership with you. And we're, and we're, we're sponsoring 20 individuals, each of whom will be, uh, receive $500 um, for a period of five years. So you can do the math. <laughs> and, and, and we're, we're, yeah, yeah. I am it's the just, math guy. It's just math hat. And, you know, we're hoping that, um, that this is the first cohort and that uh, next year we can add more people to this, um, to this pilot program. So, and ideally every year thereafter. Yes, that yeah. would be a fantastic outcome. So I have an announcement. Hey, so for those of you who, who don't like math, um, so 20 people, $500, uh, a month is $10,000 a month times 12 months is $120,000 a year times five years is $600,000. So Susan and Albert are putting up an incredible $300,000. Humanity Forward is matching that. So we're up to 600,000. And here's what you don't know that I'm about to share with you both, that the NBA player JJ Redick uh, has decided to contribute $75,000 in additional capital towards the Hudson trial. Oh, that's fantastic. fantastic. So we can make use of that to either e expand the pool of people slightly uh, or invest in some of the monitoring uh, that we'll be doing. So thank you, JJ Reddick. That's great. How wonderful. All right. If thank you, you, JJ. If you have a new favorite NBA player, Susan and Albert, it's, it's I don't know. I don't know if you have a 
have had, had a player before that. This podcast is sponsored by Helix Sleep. I've always been a mattress guy in that I knew if you're going to spend eight hours doing something, you should probably invest in doing it right. That's why I love Helix Sleep, which will send a mattress to your door that's made just for you. You take the Helix Sleep quiz and you get matched with a mattress based upon whether you want it to be soft, medium, firm, how you sleep, other variables, and then voila, it gets sent to your door and you can try it for up to 100 nights and send it back. They have a 10 plus year warranty because they believe in their product so much. I do too, my kids do too. They actually seek out this mattress even though it was designed not for them. <laughs> That's how good this product is. Helix has been awarded the number one mattress picked by GQ and Wired Magazine. It is even recommended by multiple chiropractors and doctors because they think it'll make you healthier. Don't take my word for it. Helix is offering 20% off all mattress orders and two free pillows for our listeners. Go to helixsleep.com yang and use code helixpartner20. This is their best offer yet and it won't last long. With Helix, better sleep starts now. So you're... you're leading the way and we're thrilled to be working with you on this uh that this is an incredible project and it's the longest time trial uh or universal basic income trial i believe in the u.s that's currently planned or ongoing uh so do you want to talk about why you committed to five years initially go ahead well a big part um of what we believe ubi makes possible is for people to really um, invest in themselves and to unfold their um, true potential. We believe um, everybody has amazing potential. Um, and that sometimes takes time. You know, it may take uh, some time to work through past problems before you can start to focus on the future. And then focusing on the future may take a few iterations. And so we really want people to feel like they have the support for a meaningful period of time. Right. It'll, it'll um, you know, just riffing off what you said, it'll allow people to take risks. And that's something that is so critical for us as entrepreneurs, as you, you can appreciate, um, that takes time to build a business. It takes time to, you know, as Albert said, you know, if you've got um, folks at home that need to be taken care of, um, it'll allow you to do that. And if, you, if you're talking about just a year, um, which is what a lot of these pilots do, it really doesn't afford people the freedom to be able to maybe stop that, you know, job at McDonald's they may have or, you know, take risks and, and start something new. There's an interesting uh, statistic, which is that um, much as we talk about entrepreneurship all the time, we tend to talk about tech entrepreneurship. But if you look at entrepreneurship more broadly, meaning people who start, let's say, a corner deli or who start a daycare center or who start um, any kind of small business, that's actually way down in the U.S. over the last decade plus. Yes. Uh, and so um, that's a real problem because um, that's where a lot of communities. Most of the jobs the, are. Yeah. yeah, it's where the jobs are and it's where the lifeblood of communities is. So um, for all of those reasons, we think um, going longer is better. Well, I'm a huge fan of a long time horizon for all those reasons that you just described, where a year is pretty quick 
And if you, you think about the context of a business, you both know this, that you have to be thinking three to five years for your business to have any kind of chance. Uh, and I also could not agree more that we talk way too much about tech, tech, tech. <laughs> the vast majority of businesses are just the nail salons or the food truck uh, or the uh, just sole proprietorship, really. I, I know the vast majority of businesses are sole proprietorships where it's just a person who's hung a shingle up and said, look, I can offer this to my community. And those are the kinds of opportunities we need to make more accessible and realistic to people rather than imagining that everyone's going to join some uh, startup the way it's defined by the press. Yeah. But but in addition to startups, I think there's a whole swath of folks who are caretakers who, um, you know, this will give them the opportunity to to stay home with the kids or take care of an elderly parent and not have to worry about about, you know, about working the jobs. I mean, there's you know, this is actually the one of the first opportunities people have to be paid for being a stay at home mom or, or dad. Right. Um, and that, I think, is a huge, huge freedom and something that that uh, I think truly isn't valued here. I think there, there was a study that recently came out that said that if every um, woman caretaker were paid um, last year, then they would have been paid, I think it was $1.5 trillion. And that's how much, that's how many hours people put in. Of unpaid. Of unpaid work. Yeah, Yeah. exactly. Yeah. Um, And I'm sure that hourly rate isn't even (laughs) commensurate. That's that's minimum wage. (laughs) (laughs) That's minimum wage, right. Like if you were to properly value it, it'd be several times higher. Uh, And I mean, you, you two have raised some incredible kids. I can vouch for, for the fact that, you know, they should be very proud. Um, your children are considerably older than mine and Evelyn's. But I said all the time on the trail that uh, Evelyn's working much harder than I am, you know, and the hours are longer and the rest of it. Like I was doing something easy, like running for president. <laughs> and you can frame it either as like this massive uh, undervalued work, which, like you said, Susan, would be in the trillions of dollars or reverse. You could say it's this hidden tax on women because they are in these roles more often and it's taking away from their capacities to do work that the market does recognize. But either way you look at it, to me, universal basic income is a huge step forward towards valuing the real work that's going on in our homes and towns every day. Right. And it also gives women the freedom not just to stay home, but also to be able to, say, leave relationships that could be potentially abusive, or they may decide not to move in with the boy, their boyfriend so early. They may not get um, you know, married so young. I, I don't know if you know this, Andrew, but I, I did a... Um, a survey, uh, I guess it was a couple years back, and I asked people that if if they were given a thousand dollars, if they if they knew as a teenager that they'd be given a thousand dollars a month for the rest of their life, how would their life had uh, how would their life have changed? And what was fascinating is that people had just talked about exactly what we were talking about. They would have started businesses or started businesses sooner. They would have left relationships, um, not moved in so early with their boyfriends, not have um, not. Uh, w- they would have uh, stayed home with the kids or taken care of their terminally ill mothers. You know, so all of the things that we're talking about really kind of bore out when we conducted the survey. And it's also clear we would have more 
um, artists and scientists and fewer lawyers. This is true. Yeah, I mean, it was really absolutely right. Oh, that was right. also in the numbers, which does not surprise me at all. <laughs> yeah, I mean, there were, you know, time and time again, people said that they had, they used to have a passion for being musicians or artists, um, and um, and they left those professions um, in order, or their passions, in order to become the practical lawyers and bankers and engineers. Um, so I think we lost a lot of lot of talent that way. Susan, you and I have this in common where we're both, reformed uh, or refugees from the law, <laughs> I don't know if you <laughs> practiced, but I, I made the mistake of going to like a law school reunion. I went because I was running for office and I was trying to raise money. I was like, ooh, some rich lawyers, I should be able to like at least get some money. It was, it was early days of the campaign. I was like, um, but I went and I gotta say, that was one miserable group of human beings. Like I got there and was like, this is like an anti-brochure. <laughs> this is like a non-negative non, non portrait. Yeah, it's the golden handcuffs, right? The golden handcuffs where people leave, where people think that they can't leave because they're tied to the to the money that they're earning. Yeah, so they had aspirations coming in because you know we were in school as relatively young people, and they they showed up relatively bright eyed and bushy tailed, and you know ha had aspirations. But I, it does not surprise me at all that there are a lot of people who would have chosen another path if if they knew they had some kind of financial flexibility. Well, one other point that uh, I think uh, rarely um, gets mentioned about UBI, but I think is incredibly important is, you know, in the US, um, a lot of people cannot properly participate in democracy because they are, you know, holding down two jobs um, or because they live very precarious lives where they're worried that if they lose the one job they have, that they can't afford um, their homes, they can't afford food. Um, and so democracy is more than just voting it it's civic engagement it's being up on what politicians are doing and saying and um and understanding the issues um being involved locally uh so there's lots running of running for of office running for office there's tons of um um aspects of democracy that a lot of people i think in the us are presently precluded from and um, um sometimes people look at ubi and they say oh it's just paying people off but i think they completely underestimate um, how much freedom it would give people to engage in democracy in a way that they aren't or can't today. Well, similarly, I think that, you know, there people can also start volunteering more, doing community work. You know, it's all kind of tied together yep. that they have the time and the money to be able to, to do those kinds of work, work on the environment. I, I could not agree more on both fronts. And I'll tell you, there are so many people that are checked out of our political processes in our democracy because they don't think it's going to change anything significant about their lives. They don't think politics is for people like them. They just have their heads down. They think it's all nonsense. And in a way, you don't blame them. In a way, you're just like, yeah, I get it. Because if you try and engage politically, it's very stressful, sometimes very negative. And then you, we make it way too hard to vote. <laughs> we make it way too hard to do a lot of things. Uh, and so a lot of people are like, I'm just gonna, going to ignore it. And universal basic income can help with that. It can help give you the ability to volunteer in your community. And you talk about the exploitation of women and the choices that they make. The person I always think of is the waitress at the diner who's getting harassed by their boss. And if they had some degree of financial security, they could just be like, you know, screw you, asshole. Like, you know, I don't need to deal with this. And then they leave and they know they're, they can actually take a week or two to find like another job that will help keep a roof over their heads. But right now there are so many of those people who just have to grin and bear it. 
Uh, and there's like this power dynamic. So it's in the workplace, it's in relationships. Uh, one of the boogeymen actually that scared people away from universal basic income in the 60s and 70s when they were doing trials was there was this false data point that it increased divorce rates. <laughs> where people were like, oh, no, if people got independent income, then like all of a sudden, you know, they wouldn't need to stay married, which, like, you know, really, well, the data, it turns out, was did not say that. But like, it, it's quite interesting because you think, well, like, is that necessarily bad if there were, let's say, women who didn't feel like they needed some jerk dude <laughs> like yeah. decided right. they could go No, it's own. absolutely right. I mean, it's it's a huge amount of freedom to be able to to leave your job, to leave your relationship, bad relationships. I mean, it's just it's what we all wish for. And it's right there. It, it changes the, the bargaining position fundamentally. Yeah. Yeah. Well, one thing you referenced is uh, the composition of Hudson as a town. I believe it's 19% black. Is that right? There's like a percentage. Sounds about right. Yep. Sounds right. Sounds yeah, it's very, it's very, um, um, as Susan said, it's very demographically diverse. Yeah, that was, that was one thing that excited us when you saw the town that uh, it was diverse in terms of race and economics, where there are some people that are, as you said, almost a third on, uh, at the poverty line or below. Um, and it's a small enough place where this, uh, this, UBI trial, I think, is going to be like a massive deal in this town. I don't know whether people have already been reaching out to Spark of Hudson or Hudson Up um, and what that process looks like. When do we think that the first monies will start going out to folks? Because I'm sure there's a lot of need right now. Yeah, we're, we're, we're targeting um, the middle of October um, with maybe slipping into November. Um, but that's what we're targeting. I think one thing that might be uh, important to mention also is that we're very fortunate that we have um, the support of many community members and that we also have the support of Mayor Kamal Johnson, who, you know, was recently elected and who grew up in Hudson. And uh, he is very excited about this also and has has given us the support um, to to reach other others in the community and, and to to throw his, you know, um, uh, support behind it. So that's yeah, been he's tremendous. The, um, he's the first black mayor of Hudson and has been a, a terrific champion of ours. And the reason that it's taking um, taking a little bit of time right now before the first monies are dispersed is we're really make, trying to make this a community-driven process in terms of how the selection and eligibility criteria are, are put forth. So we're really, we're going from community member to community member and organizations and really talking about the project, educating people and getting their feedback as far as how it should exactly run. Yeah, and making sure that people fully understand um, what the ideas behind it are so that when we do launch, there isn't a lot of uh, weird mystery or rumors or other things um, that can easily happen with a project like this. We have to get Kamal as part of that new Mayors for UBI group. He could join and be like their 11th uh, member. Uh, or 12th absolutely. Member. Yeah. I think he would be thrilled to do that. Yeah. Yeah, we'll to, yeah it's, I mean, it's an incredible group of people. Um, I don't know if you've met Michael Tubbs, I'm sure you would have at some point. Um, the universal basic income community is not as vast as <laughs> one, might, uh, <laughs> one might imagine. Uh, but yeah, Kamal's gonna make a great fit, I'm sure. Knowing how to speak and understand a new language can be an invaluable tool when traveling, meeting new friends, or just even to master a new skill. But it's not always simple when you're bogged down by textbooks and structure classes. 
That's why so many people trust Rosetta Stone. Rosetta Stone is the most trusted language learning program available on desktop or as an app. It truly immerses you in the language you want to learn, like Spanish, French, Italian, Chinese, and more. You won't just be studying English translations. The Rosetta Stone intuitive process helps you pick up a language naturally, first with words, then phrases, then sentences. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com rs10. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com rs10 today. Albert, one thing you said to me early on in the campaign is actually pre-campaign, uh, but you said something like the Swiss had to run a referendum on women's right to vote 16 times before it passed or something along those lines. Yeah. And, you're, you, and, and you made that comparison because you were like, we should start running on UBI now with the thought that it might take more than one try. Uh, and I remember hearing this and I just loved the, um, the long-term thinking you had where it wasn't like, hey, is Andrew Yang going to be in the White House? It was more like, hey, let's, <laughs> let's get the first run in because it might take multiple tries. Yeah, it, it, it might be uh, worth zooming out for a moment. Um, you know, the, the, this UBI isn't a panacea. Um, it is one ingredient in a larger transition. And what is that larger transition? It's the transition out of the industrial age. So the biggest mistake that politicians um, in many countries, not just the US, have been making for probably the last 10, maybe the last 20 years, is to treat digital technology and computers as if it was just an extension of the industrial age. Um, this transition that we're going through is as profound as when we went from being fortress to agrarian society and then from agrarian society to industrial society. And so those transitions took long periods of time um, and they were multi-generational projects and they required the wholesale reinvention of how people live. Uh, and so um, UBI is super important. It's a cornerstone, but it's not the only thing that we need to think about when we talk about how we get past the industrial age. Uh, and so um, it's crucial to have a larger vision. Uh, and you know, part of the um, how we wind up with certain sort of regressive political movements at the moment in many um, democracies is because, We've left this vacuum where for a decade or more, we've been saying, look, a little tweak of the interest rate here and a little bit of retraining over there and everything will be good. And where most people sit, that's just not true. Most people are saying that you keep saying that, but it's just not working, right? And so we, we, we need to paint a broader picture of a future. Uh, and Susan mentioned the spark of Hudson earlier. That is also part of that broader picture, which is, who has access to knowledge? How do you bring knowledge to everybody, including people who've been excluded from it for a long period of time? Yeah, so that's why we're working on the workforce development program. We're working on trying to get the infrastructure in Hudson um, up to speed and transportation so that people can actually get to the work um, that that there may exist. So all the different parts. And, and, and also the, the connectivity infrastructure so people have high-speed access um, and fundamentally changing, you know, where and how you can learn, right? So um, we have set up a system where 
the presumption is that you need to go to school in order to learn. And then ideally you go from school to some like fancy college. And if you don't do that, you're somehow like not smart, not worthy, can't learn things. And we believe that um, that's just not true, that um, people can learn things. They can learn them at different ages in different ways. And that, you know, a big thrust of digital technology is to let people learn things at any point, um, you know, including much later in life. Now more than ever, I mean, uh, your kids, again, are a bit older, but I was in parts of the country where they don't have high speed Internet. And you can imagine those kids now trying to learn. I mean, uh, there are so many kids that right now are struggling uh, academically because of the fact that now, I mean, they've lost months and we're looking at this fall. It's unclear what schools are going to look like, but certainly having broadband access to me is like a cornerstone, a building block. It's like, how can you make meaningful educational opportunities available if someone like they're, they're not even going to, to be able to plug in uh uh, in a real way. So one thing that you all have been very passionate about, which I think most everyone listening to this is going to agree with, is that so you have one cornerstone is universal basic income and then climate change is something else that you've been very passionate about and working on. And so, Susan, I'd love to ask you something that I just saw an article and it made me almost jump for joy, uh, where someone who's an environmental activist said, hey, universal basic income might really be part of the solution on lightening up our environmental footprint uh, so can you talk about the work you all have been doing on climate change and how you see some of these income policies impacting our ability to make progress on a sustainable economy? All right. Well, uh, this is well, I can talk a little bit about the fact that right now we're at Wally Farms um, and the, what we're doing here is we've got a, a little expression called we're growing climate solutions here. Um, and the idea is to use this as an experimental hub to address um, and test out certain theories um, in order to capture um, carbon dioxide. And um, Albert, you've been running a number of the experiments that's been, that have been going on here. Yeah, so um, what we're doing here is is trying to grow additional biomass specifically um, with the purpose of taking carbon out of the atmosphere and putting it back into the ground. Um, the relation to UBI is a really interesting one. Um, first, uh, as we talked about previously, we'll let more people be politically active and get to solutions um, for the climate crisis. But the second thing is there's also some evidence, um, early evidence, that UBI changes people's view of consumption. Um, and the way it does that is that when you are no longer in the scarcity mindset that, um, oh my God, I can't afford anything, uh, consumption actually starts to loom less large in people's um, needs and and all of a sudden people go oh maybe i should learn something instead or maybe i should put some money aside or maybe i should um become engaged in something so um there's a lot of evidence that um the sort of scarcity mindset that is forced upon a lot of people makes it very difficult to think beyond consumption and to think about such issues as the climate crisis um and so it'll be interesting to see. I don't know whether we'll see this here in, in, in the Hudson Up um, trial, but um, that is an important um, aspect of, of, of UBI. You, you earlier said that uh, I, I was sort of saying time is money. Um, it, it's, a, it's, it's more attention rather than time. So attention is this, you know, what is it that within the last day, for example, you actually 
consciously applied yourself to. Uh, and so much of um, uh, what we're applying ourselves to, unfortunately, is just, you know, consumption and it's just making enough money to keep consuming. And so disrupting well, and to, that to pay the bills, yeah, and to pay and the bills, put, the, put food on the table, right? Yeah, yeah. So disrupting that is a is a crucial aspect, and and it is hard to see how we can overcome the climate crisis without also getting past the industrial age. The two are joined at the hip. I made the same argument on the trail. One of my hopes was that if you had the boot off of people's throats, where you, where you had enough money, where you could meet your basic needs. I thought we'd have much more in the way of arts and creativity and folks going to the woods and working on a novel and whatnot and adopting more minimalist type lifestyles because they would have different goals uh, for themselves and different pursuits instead of driving and commuting to their cubicle and doing job X, like you'd have more people doing things that were more organic. And, and we're seeing that now in the, with COVID, right? A lot of people are now moving to the country and we're seeing that they're not consuming as much as they were, that they're going out in nature, that they're enjoying it, that they're that they're doing activities that, as Albert said, is, are, are not consumptive. And there's a basic income project in Germany that Susan and I've been supporting for years that has a lot of evidence to that same effect where people um, really... Um, suddenly decrease their consumption. This is sometimes a um, an objection that people bring up to UBI. They say people are just going to spend it on more stuff, but actually the evidence goes the opposite direction. That makes me so glad because I was making that argument on the, the trail. Probably best I wasn't citing like some German data. No offense, Americans tend to like their data homegrown. But uh, like the, the thing I was suggesting was like, look, if you can actually get the boot off of people's throats, they're going to be much more energized around making different types of choices and also be more uh, attentive to climate change. Because right now, if you're laboring under this constant scarcity mindset and someone says, you need to worry about climate change, and you're like, I'm worried about next month's rent. Yeah. You know, it's like yeah. I, like, like, like the earth or this Absolutely. big grand problem that's like years away. And then the human impulse is to say, ah, it's not that bad. It's not, it's not that big a deal anyway. Like that's right. just like the sort of uh, defensive response. So I said, that's what we have to change for people. Well, and also um, the thing that we're working on here at the farm is, of course, the innovations around carbon capture, but also we're trying to change the mindset of how people view the climate crisis that, you know, it could really be um, when you when you work to be sustainable, it can really be something quite joyous. And so the kinds of work we're doing are ones where we're um, where where it's all around sort of enjoying nature and um, enjoying, you know, uh, we, we've gotten sort of an electric, you know, ATV instead of a gas propelled one to, to toot around the property or, you know, an electric bike, you know, things that, um, you know, ordinarily, you know, are, you know, maybe are, are a little. Um, well, yeah, I mean, it's, it's the idea that um, we have the means to overcome this crisis without somehow all, you know, going back and, and sort of living in a hovel. Right. And and, and being dour about yeah. it. <laughs> yeah. We're having fun while I, we're doing it. I uh, I mean this in the most flattering way possible, but like you you two seem like movie characters where you're like, we had the farm, carbon capture, <laughs> electric ATV, giving money to the local community to fund universal basic income for five years. Like the whole thing is so, uh, I mean, I think you called it the Utopic Foundation. I, I feel like it's very yeah, well named. 
it's it's the Utopia Foundation spelled EU-topia. Um, Utopia with just a U means technically nowhere, and Utopia, EU-topia means good place. So it's it's all an attempt to help make the world a slightly better place. Utopia. Why would you coin that? Is that a real term? If I look them in the dictionary, is that's it a, utopia? It, it, it's it's a real thing. We're making it a real thing. Yes. <laughs> We can christen it right now. We should be seeking Utopia. Yeah, if you go to utopiafoundation.org. <laughs> yeah, I'm resisting. Go to utopiafoundation.org with an E at the, the beginning. But the the, uh, the fact that you are putting it all into practice in such a positive way, I, I think is so powerful. You know, like there, there's the abstract, which you can argue for it. And then there's like, and look, here's the practice. Here's us doing it. Here's what uh, it can be in, in real life. Uh, I have not been to the farm yet, but I need to get there. Oh yeah, no, you need to visit. Yeah, no, absolutely. And and you know what? The hope is that other folks will look at what we're doing and try it in their own communities. You know, because we really want you know think that what we're doing both in Hudson and here in the farm. You know, we want people all around the you know, U.S. and the world to to you know start UBI projects to your know, pilots and to you know experiment with carbon because we need every you know in carbon capture we need everyone to be working on these different problems and figure out in their own town how to do it. And so as part of that, um, our plan is to also open source um, everything we do at the Spark of Hudson and at Wally Farms so that people can just access the knowledge freely. Yeah. And we're creating a playbook um, for the UBI pilot, um, yeah. of which we're partnering with you. Um, and, you know, with the idea that, you know, let's all let's all figure this out and try different kinds of, of pilots and see what works. Well, you, you two are, again, forces of... Uh, progress really they're like a more evolved humans than most of us <laughs> and uh uh so albert i said time was the new money you said attention is the new money i i feel like right now we're in like a particular strange moment where so we're all most of us are inside and so we're engaged with various media offerings and, and social media and then there's like this right now this moment around uh, sort of the drawbacks of social media to some extent. There's this Facebook boycott where people are concerned. It's like, what, what is going on on Facebook? Uh, there's all the electioneering, obviously. People are thinking, you know, um, where are we going to get the uh, political information to be able to vote for president this fall or th for other uh, elections? So when you talk about like attention as the new money, like what can that look like if we do it right and what can it look like if we do it not so right? Yeah, so so I think of attention as the new scarcity. So um, capital was the defining scarcity of the industrial age, land of the agrarian age, food of the forage age. Now attention is the defining scarcity. You, you know, you can't go back in your life, right? You can't go back and change what you paid attention to yesterday. Um, I wish we could. I wouldn't have uh, watched that thing. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, that's the thing, right? I mean, and, 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 and look, you know, a student who is walks into an exam ill-prepared can't go back and suddenly prepare. A nation that goes into a global pandemic ill-prepared can't go back and say, oh, we should have done more research on coronaviruses. You just can't do it, right? So attention is fundamentally scarce. And the business model of some of the biggest corporations is premised on hogging as much of that attention as they can because advertising, which is the fundamental business model of Facebook and Google, is the resale of attention. 
Uh, it's taking as much attention as you can get and then taking some of it and selling it to the advertisers. So um, their model um, tries to grab our attention and not let go of it. And that's a lot easier to do by giving you um, faux outrage and by giving you cheap emotional things um, as opposed to saying, hey, why don't you go and actually read this difficult book? Or why don't you go and watch this hour-long video that actually explains something in depth and really watch it to the end and then answer these? You know, that's not in their interest. In their interest is, here's a quick hit and here's another quick hit and here's another quick hit. Wow, so every YouTube video has a quiz afterwards. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> You know, and, and so it's easy to like, you know, YouTube combines in one place the best and the worst of the Internet, right? There are amazing videos on YouTube. Um, there are channels like Numberphile um, that, you know, like make math come alive in mathematicians' own words. It's absolutely wonderful and it's free and it's extraordinary. There's incredible yoga videos for free, um, meditation stuff, you know. And then, of course, there's also the weirdest, wackiest conspiracy stuff um, all there. And so... Or even darker, like toxic, dangerous, hateful ideology. It's not even weird. It's like genuinely uh, destructive and corrosive. Absolutely. And so I think what we need to do in order to um, be in charge of our attention is three things. Um, we need to be economically free. That's the UBI portion we've talked about. We need to be informationally free, which is we need to be able to program these systems. Right now, we are being programmed by these systems. We need to get to a place where we can program these systems. And then the third part is um, we need to be psychologically free, which is we need to each have some kind of uh, mindfulness practice that lets us figure out when it's time to put the lid down on the computer and walk away and just you know, rest with our own thoughts for a while. Well, that, that mindfulness practice is something I could not agree more that we need more of. And we should be teaching it in schools. Uh, we should be promoting it throughout society. Uh, if anyone wants to dig into Albert's thoughts on this, his book, The World After Capital, is available for free online, I believe. It is, yes. <laughs> like uh, Al Al Albert's not the type that was hoarding info. He just like put it out there. Uh, and people can access it freely. Uh, that is really, uh, according to what he's saying, like you're paying for it through your attention. Like yes. he didn't need he didn't need money. <laughs> you know, <laughs> he just like put it there. Uh, so the fact that you you you're advocating mindfulness doesn't surprise me. That both of you seem very mindful. Uh, like you you that when I talked about like you being elevated people, um, and would love your advice. And this is just me being selfish. Uh, for the parents out there, really, because this is such like an incredibly stressful time. So first, have your children been around during the summer? Like uh, they, they are a bit older, but I know school might be out for them. Yeah, so they've been um, they've been around. They're um, they're a little older now, so actually um, uh, they've been going in and out of the protests that are happening in New York, um, socially distancing. Hopefully, definitely wearing masks. Um, critical, um, but you know, I think you know. Hopefully, we've instilled in them the importance of being politically active and to participate in um, you know in what's important um, in the community, and that Black Lives Matter movement um, certainly is is you know top of mind and 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 critical um so they've been doing that and i think on the mindfulness front um completely agree with what you said andrew it, it's something that ought to be taught in schools um you know it's it's something that it's like an owner's manual to your brain it's like the missing manual for your brain right um but i think everybody needs to find their own practice you know um 
mindfulness like can come in many different forms for some people that's running for other people that's yoga for other people it's meditation it's breathing whatever it is it's it i don't think there's sort of a single prescriptive thing um but talking about it is already a good starting point because um i know the words sort of been slung around so much that it, it people sometimes roll their eyes at it but it's actually really meaningful and and if i think about if I could write myself a letter to, you know, my 18 or 20 year old self, um, that's the one thing I would put in there is like develop a mindfulness practice. It makes you a better parent, a better uh, human being. Susan, do your children have any stories from the protests? I talked to someone who attended and it seemed like a very different thing than what I, I'd seen on the press. Um, like, I don't know if, if they came back and shared with you any stories uh, that made you either more or less concerned uh, for them, frankly, like attending? <laughs> um, well, it, from what I understand, there's a real community that's being that's being built. Um, so in addition, obviously, to being present, which is um, they're down at they've been down at City Hall. Um, uh, our son, for instance, has gotten involved. There's a there's a makeshift um, library there, um, and so there there are book groups that have been forming that he's been involved in and particip participating in. Um, so I think the idea that not only are they obviously united for a certain cause, but there's a you know there's a real community that's being built among among the protesters, which is which is lovely to see. Hopefully not too close to one another, but yeah. Well, I, I saw some data points that suggest that the protests have not led to a spike in uh, infection rates. Like you, you have the sense that people are being pretty responsible. Um, at least th those were the, the yeah. studies I'd seen. It, it also seems like uh, mo most of the really big transmission events happen indoors. So, um, it, you know, it, it might be worth pointing out, and I think you've done that too in the past, that... Um, UBI, um, one of the big supporters, of course, was MLK, um, and um, and I think in in general, there's been uh, you know support um, uh, from the black community, um, from parts of the black community for um, UBI um, as a way for people to kind of um, be free um, from some of the economic disadvantages that they've been sort of systematically exposed to for a long periods of time. A, a sort of reparation that's happening. Yeah, I made that case all the time. And I'm happy to say I met with Martin Luther King III, uh, MLK's son, who said that this is exactly what his dad was talking about uh, when he was killed. And the most striking thing about this conversation was that he referred to Martin Luther King as dad because like, he was his dad. I was like, wow, dad said this. And I was like, Martin Luther King was your father. <laughs> like, I mean, it's funny. You obviously met with him with that understanding, but still just having him say that. Andrew, Andrew your son will be saying that about you well, one day as well. <laughs> oh, please. <laughs> I, I, I highly doubt there's going to be an Andrew Yag holiday. <laughs> like, you know. My, my kids were the least interested in my campaign. It only got good for them when I got a bus. But they were like, dad is a bus. Cool. Yeah, I think their exact words during the debates were, uh, this is boring. <laughs> like like uh, Evelyn was trying to get them to watch. They're like, look, it's dad. It's dad. Um, actually, just now, literally two or three days ago, one of my sons stumbled onto a YouTube video about universal basic income that then mentioned me. And I think that was the new high water mark for me as their father, <laughs> like cool dad, is that I was in a YouTube video <laughs> about universal base income uh, that they found by accident. So that was, that was a good, awesome. good dad moment for me. <laughs>
Well, I'm so proud of your your boys um, and uh, for being part of history. Uh, hopefully, we can get some real policy changes across the finish line where Black Lives Matter is, con- is concerned. And, do- um, and, and, daughter. and daughter. Yes, and daughter. Oh, and your daughter three. as well. We have three, three. yes. Yeah, no, I wasn't sure if she was touted. But yeah, that you know, that's something that it's, it's interesting where it seems like there are all these things that are spiraling together. And someone called it the omni-crisis, uh, where right now we have the pandemic, the economic displacement and the job loss and then uh black lives matter are all sort of tied together uh and it's to me something where it's not like an either or it's like we have to do it all like just the way that you and your family are pursuing it like we have to address economic scarcity we need to address climate change and as part of it we need to uh, bring people together and see that we're all uh we're all the same really and that dividing us and in this case brutally victimizing people of color uh, is reprehensible and wrong. And and all of this is wrapped up in us being stuck in the industrial age. Um, And that, and so what we can't be doing is we can't be continuing to pursue incrementalist solutions to this problem. Um, You know, it's not going to be fixed by the Fed printing a bit more money. It's not going to be fixed by, you know, saying we're going to get out of carbon by 2050 um, we need to, um, this is the time for the kind of, you know, we're going to the moon, not because it's easy. This is the kind of time we should be pursuing. We should be pursuing, let's get to, you know, off fossil fuels by 2025. You know, it's like, how can we um, radically transform how we're living um, in recognition of uh, that there's an incredible, uh, beautiful future that's possible if we just let go of some of the past. I'm more optimistic about the prospects of universal basic income getting passed uh, than I am, than I've been at any point, really. Uh, the problem is that it, it's taken truly horrific circumstances for us to get to a point where I feel like 74% of Americans want direct cash relief and that uh, hope, I believe that it's going to become a centrist political stance uh, yeah. very quickly. Yeah. Uh, and so I, I agree with you that like the time for baby steps is long, long past. Like we need to be looking at great leaps forward in part because the deficit is so great. It's like we've let it build up for so many decades that in order to, to catch up, we would need to do very, very dramatic things. Uh, very, very differently. Uh, I'm optimistic that people's minds are being open to those possibilities right now. Again, unfortunately, because it's it's like a disastrous time we're in the midst of. At very high cost, but um, you know that there's certainly the silver lining in this current pandemic is that it is getting people to reassess priorities at a much more fundamental level than anything we've seen before in the last you know decade. Yeah. I feel that urgency too. It's like the a crisis is a terrible thing to waste. Like we need to take advantage of this time because if we just let this time go and then we just slump back into something resembling yeah. what what we were, I'm going to be so angry, disgusted, frustrated, like humiliated for us. Like as a country, like we we need to stay energized and actually get some things across the finish line. And people are going to be looking to you two. Susan and Albert for inspiration as to how we can actually build a better future. I do. 
Um, so people find Andrew Yang inspirational. I find Susan Danziger and Albert Wenger inspirational. I find them inspirational in part because I've met um, uh, met their children, and their children are like what I want my children to grow up as. <laughs> they're, they're like these these like multi dimensional, warm, caring humans who are like really passionate and interested in certain things. One of them's like a like like an incredible cook and the fact that i know that is just like <laughs> <laughs> i think you may have benefited actually from yes, when yes. From, i think he cooked you dinner <laughs> oh, yeah, that no, night. that's a, that's from direct experience like uh, that's not hearsay that's like me freaking like you know trying the food um, <laughs> well what's so funny is you know now we're now that we're on the farm you know we're talking about like who would be valuable to be up here and we're like forget the bankers forget the lawyers forget the you know economists even economists like we need people who know how to like you know work the instruments you know, work the farm, like things that are truly useful. Yes. So, Doctors, um, electricians. Right. But, and cooks, right? So, <laughs> uh, chefs. So, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Like, like cooks and chefs would be very high on our <laughs> list, <laughs> at least. So, I, you know, I've been eating quarantine food. Um, well, you, but yeah, when people find me inspirational, I find you two inspirational. And I am thrilled to work with you on. Hudson up over the next number of years. Like we're gonna learn some incredible things. We're gonna change lives. I mean, like like that's one of the the greatest parts of the campaign where when you can actually give someone economic resources in, in a real way, it's like their their mind first like they they react so emotionally, um, and then you can see almost like their mind open in real time, yeah. where it's like a like a cloud lifts or a weight lifts. And the yeah. fact that we're going to do that for people in Hudson and then other people are going to see that that's possible. Uh, I'm just grateful to you all for giving us this opportunity. Uh, we're, we're super excited to be partnering with uh, Humanity Forward on this. Yeah, no, I really appreciate the support here. And uh, I know that people of Hudson are excited to you know, say, when, when, you know, when can we start? How can we apply? So they're all, they're, you know, they're very excited about the prospect. And uh, uh, we're excited to see where it leads. And hopefully it'll be a model for other communities uh, around the U.S and world. Yeah, well, we're going to be keeping up with this trial every step of the way. We're going to be beaming results out to folks. People are going to see who gets chosen. Uh, and yeah, it's going to be a very human story. Uh, thrilled to have it unfold like before the world, really, alongside you both. Great. Excited. Hudson up. Let's do it. Universal Basic Income. Five years. JJ Reddick, Susan Danziger, Albert Banger, Humanity Forward. Uh, and, and if anybody listening to this wants to contribute to it, by all means, we're happy to add more people to the pilot. So yeah, yeah just drop any of us a line. We'll like plug it in, and then uh, you know you can change a life as well. Um, it's going to be uh, a, a very very glorious uh, part of history. Really, we're going to make some history together. Absolutely, and thanks to JJ as well for contributing. Yes. You should connect us. Oh yeah, yeah, you'll meet JJ soon. He's a great guy. I'm I'm a big JJ Reddick fan.